0: G.K. Chesterton was a well-known author in the early 20th century. And and he was a a convert to Catholicism. He once famously said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. And I think there there is no part of Christianity that has been found harder than Jesus is teaching today to love our enemies. There has been no part of the Christian life that has been tried less than turn the other cheek. You know, if I parse out what what Jesus is saying today on that Sermon on the Mount, you know, I think maybe it, it isn't you know, those those parts are really hard. If we can get behind one part of it, maybe, you know, one part of that, that that whole teaching today, which seems really, really difficult, maybe the one part that we can get behind, it's the pray for those who persecute you. You know, you and, and I may even have done that ourselves at one point or another. We've prayed for those who, you know, have hurt us, those who have... Um, that that maybe it hasn't risen to the level of persecution but you know that that have uh, caused us some harm in some way you know i think i think back there uh, i don't want to go into the details but there was there was someone in authority over me when i was in the seminary you know and and they called me into their office and and told me this one time that i had to stop agitating to change something in the way things were done at the seminary, I didn't. I thought it was unjust certain things that were going on, and I was speaking up about it. And he called me into his office, and he told me uh, that that I had to stop. And, and look, this didn't this didn't rise to the level of persecution, but you know there were there were sort of you know these. Veiled threats made towards me about you know delaying my ordination as a result of this. There was you know a direct uh, pressure to, to get me to stop. And and there was what I would what we now, I didn't see this at the time, but I, I see it now as as bullying. And I do remember praying for that person on more than one occasion. And so, yes, technically, I was doing what Jesus asked us to do in today's gospel, pray for those who persecute you. Except except I realized that the prayers that I was making, I was praying for that person to have a change of heart. I was praying for them to see the light and to see the error in the judgment that they were making. What I was effectively doing in those prayers, I was praying for myself, really. You know, I was praying for my problem to go away. Praying for, for somebody else to see things my way. You know, it's not God's will be done. I wanted my will be done. And, and in hindsight, I realized I wasn't doing what Jesus is asking today. Jesus doesn't say, pray for the conversion of those who persecute you. Or pray for the, to, that the persecution will stop Jesus says that God the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He wants us to pray for the good of those who persecute us, pray for God's blessing on them. And that's not easy, that's hard. And by the way, when, I, when that first time that I read that, or heard that, I guess, when I was young, that idea that the, the sun, you know, he makes the sun rise on the good and the bad, the rain fall on the righteous and unrighteous. I, I heard that analogy, and when I, when I was young, I first heard it, I read, I, I read it to mean that, the good, that good and bad befall everyone equally. Because in my mind, you know, sun was good, rain was bad. We're Canadian. Sun is good. Snow is bad. But, you know, like, you think it's sort of like, okay, I want, but but I'm a city boy. I don't like to go out in the rain, in the snow. But Jesus is speaking to people in an agricultural society that needs both sun and rain. And on top of that, he's speaking to people who lived in an arid climate. Rain was actually a blessing. When the rains came, it meant it was a blessing, a sign of God's providence and blessing for the people. God blesses all people, regardless of how righteous or unrighteous they are. Now, do I I think that praying for the good of a persecutor or an enemy will include them being able to embrace God's love for them? Sure. Sure. Do I think that recognizing that they are the, the, fa- the Father's beloved child and thus they should try and love others as a brother or sister and that, and that means stopping to, the pers- any persecution or harm that they are doing? Absolutely. But is that what I pray for? You know, I may now realize in my head that that's what Jesus is asking of us to pray for our enemies and those who hurt us? But do I? Do I pray from the heart for them, for their good? Or is it really a prayer for my good? And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, like Chesterton says, I have found it too hard and left it untried. Maybe there are times when I worry that if I, if I pray for their good, if I pray that, that they will see that all, God, all the things that God has done for them, the myriad of ways that he's blessed them, and yet, and yet they still hurt people, yet they still hurt people that they care about. Maybe if I pray like that, I worry that I'll suddenly see the ways that I have hurt people even though I've been blessed by God, even though I am loved, that I, has, I am God's beloved child, and yet I still hurt my brothers and sisters. Maybe I'll see there, that there are ways in which I have been a bully in the past, where I've been pressuring people to do what I wanted them to do, rather than what was good in and of itself or good for them. And maybe... Maybe the Lord will tell me in prayer something really uncomfortable, something I don't want to hear. Maybe he'll say something crazy like, take that log out of your own eye. And that's painful. That's something hard to do. So maybe I leave praying for my enemy's good untried. Maybe I'm comfortable staying in my little, uh, in my comfort zone and praying for myself when I ostensibly pray for my enemies, when I pray for people who have hurt me. And maybe it's, it's pretty much the same thing with this crazy notion that Jesus has that I should turn the other cheek. Maybe I don't want to step out of my comfort zone by turning, but turn it. my comfort zone is I turn my back, not my cheek, when someone's hurt me. But that's not where God wants me. I've come to learn that the, the Lord really isn't all He's not comfortable with comfort zones. He doesn't want me in my comfort zone. Over the years, I've learned that every time I, I feel like I'm in a good place spiritually, professionally, in my relationships, that's when God's going to come and challenge me the most. When he's going to me, ask me to take a step out in faith. Where he's going to ask me to take a risk. Risks that, that may very well lead to me being hurt again. That may put, make me, put me in a vulnerable position. But I've also learned that when I do... It's not always, but when I do take those risks, when I do step out of my comfort zone, it leads to really much better things, to much deeper relationships. It leads me to, to things that I, I don't know that are even possible on my own. There's a story I, I read recently that relates to this this challenging teaching of Jesus. There are two neighboring farmers, James and John, and you know they've been neighbors, they've been friends for decades, until a dispute arises between them over a piece of land. And, you know, and this dispute leads to a lot of, of bickering, of harsh words being exchanged. Some some quarreling between them, and finally they end up having to go to court. And it's a long process, and, and that quarreling, that, that, that animosity grows over that time in that court case. But finally, the judge rules in favour of James. But John, John remains bitter and resentful. He doesn't want to accept the decision. And the bitterness grows in John so to the point where he ends up poisoning his neighbor's well water. And it's, and it's nothing fatal, mind you, but just enough that it has, you know, he's still able to water his crops with it, but and he's still theoretically able to drink it, but the smell is just something horrendous. It becomes terrible to drink, even though if it isn't harmful. And James starts to get very angry about it, and he starts to to talk to his neighbors and he starts to to badmouth his his, his badmouth John with all of this and and there you know there's some neighbors who like all of us some some of them who like think yeah I don't really want to get involved in this dispute but there are enough of them who start to think that what John has done is awful and that he deserves to be punished for this and it doesn't take long before before James is you know, in his bitterness, he wants and, and his desire to retaliate he, he's decided he's going to go do the very same thing to john's well and the night that he's resolves to go and, and poison the well, James's brother arrives to visit, and his brother's upset to hear all that's gone on, and especially to hear that his, that his brother and and John are no longer on on speaking terms. And, and, and then he tastes and smells the water and he's, he's really concerned by all this. He, he sort of, he's, he's, he recognizes that it tastes, you know, almost, it makes it almost undrinkable. But when James tells them that he's gonna go and retaliate, that's when his brother says, hold on, I don't know that retaliation is gonna make anything better. I have a better idea. Just just wait till morning. I have a better idea. And in the morning, his James's brother gets up really early and he starts to he goes out to the well and he starts to drain and clean out the well. James reluctantly sees him and joins in. And together they spend hours on the, the messy, nasty business of cleaning out and flushing out that well water. And after flushing it many times, cleaning it over and over, they, they finally let it refill and they go to taste the water. And James, James tastes, still tastes that foulness in the water. But his brother smells nothing and tastes nothing. It's clean now, James, don't worry, it's clean. But, but James won't hear of it, it still, insists that it still tastes bad. And his brother tells him, James, trust me, it's clean. There's nothing wrong with this water. But you continue to taste the poison because you haven't forgiven John. So his brother convinces him finally to go and, and go over to John's and to seek some reconciliation rather than retaliation. And they talk for a long time. And finally, they come to a place where they're able to make some peace. And when James comes back, sure enough, that well water tastes clean. Sometimes we need our brother Jesus to push us to not sit in our comfort zones, to not sit in the bitterness and the resentment, and even in retaliation. Sometimes, We need Jesus to work with us, to heal our wounds, to push us outside of our comfort zones and to try something we've been afraid of, turning the other cheek. Or to try something really hard like forgiveness, reconciliation, mercy. Maybe we need our brother Jesus to push us to take risks, to give us the strength to risk getting hurt again. On Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent. This, this 40 days of Lent, I'm going to invite you to look within yourself to see if there's some part of your comfort zone that Jesus is calling you to move out of. If there's some, something hard like forgiveness and reconciliation that he's, in, that he's asking you to take a risk and go out and try. Christianity is hard. It takes strength and courage to follow Jesus. It's it's relatively easy to believe in Jesus, but it's hard to believe everything Jesus says. It's hard to believe him when he says, turn the other cheek, when he says, love your enemies, when he says, pray, really pray for those who persecute you. But this Lent, if you can sense Jesus encouraging you to take a risk, to do something hard, then I know Jesus will be there with you, alongside you, working with you every step of the way.